I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. We just finished watching stage one of the Big Bank Tour, uh, finishing in Ardoi, and we'll be discussing that and also the Flesh on preview. Just a brief preview, not as long as the Big Bank Tour preview and maybe a few odds and ends of some other news around the traps. But as you heard, if you listen to the Big Bank Tour preview podcast, which came out yesterday, still not really, that hasn't aged yet. If you do want to listen to that, it's still pretty relevant, given that nothing too much happened on GC uh, in this stage. So there's still another four stages. So go and check that out after this if you want to. But yeah, this is a pancake flat stage pretty much from uh, Blankenberg to Ardoi, 132Ks. There's a golden kilometre about uh, 20 k's from the finish. Benji will explain what happened there and what maybe refresh our memories on what, what those golden kilometers are in a second. And then, yeah, flat finish in Ardoi. So no wind today. Apparently there might be a little bit more wind in the stages to come. So that's something to look forward to. But, yeah, Benji, what? how did this stage start? It was a bit of a, a, bit of a snoozer for most of it, which I don't mind. I like getting some work done, actually, in these sprint stages. Yeah, it's the usual sprint stage where you have a certain breakaway that gets away. And on this stage, it was two riders, Willems from Topsport Vlaanderen. And we also had Ludovic Robet, which is a rider from wallonie Bruxelles. So two riders from pro-continental teams. And generally, that's usual for this kind of race because these are the riders that you will expect to see in the fat stage as well in the breakaway, most likely, because they'll try and show their sponsor, their their team in their local area. And that's what you see in French races as well, where you see French riders trying to get up front. So it's quite simple. The uh, pro county teams from Belgium, they try to send some people in the breakaway to show off their colors a bit because I don't expect them to be up there too much on the fourth and fifth stage, which are the biggest stages of them all. But nonetheless, it actually became quite a snoozer, like you said, until the Golden Kilometer started, actually since I think we had two crashes or something before the golden kilometer, but nothing major, luckily, at that point. We had, I think, a rider from... I don't even know. It's not yeah, it's not that important. The riders that crashed at that point. So the golden kilometer is basically where all the action started today. And to remind you what that golden kilometer means, well, for one kilometer, you've got intermediate sprints. So there are three intermediate sprints in one kilometer, each intermediate sprint of those three, you can gain three seconds, two seconds, one second, if you're first, second, or third. Now, yesterday we said that it was every 333 meters. That's mathematically incorrect. It's every 500 <laughs> meters when the, when, the, when the kilometer starts, in the middle of the kilometer, and at the end. So thank you to the person that called that out in the comment section. We saw that <laughs> you are correct, very much correct. Yeah, Lantern Mart is not always correct, it seems. <laughs> but uh, I, I could have uh, corrected him as well if I noticed. So my bad as well. Anyway, that golden kilometer started and we saw before that that some teams went to the full. And I, first of all, already noticed that the person we expect to go for these, Mathieu Vanderpool, 
was certainly trying. And also Jumbo Visma, who moved forward. But this is my question for you. You've got this golden kilometer about 22-ish kilometers from the line today, which means that if you put your sprinter up there to try and sprint there, then he's most likely not going to be up there in the final sprint. If you've got a rider like Mike Tunison, who can definitely top three a podium, well, obviously, top three a podium is a podium, but top three a stage in a sprint, would you let him go for those intermediate seconds, considering he might not have the time trial ability and or maybe the other two stages might not be in his favor too much, so he might only end up with a top 10 in GC at the end of the uh, week? I don't know. It's hard to say with the Golden Kilometer. I kind of expected, and I was clearly wrong, I expected the GC candidates to be really going for it, and none of them apart from Van der Poel seemed to really go for the the Golden Kilometer. And it's, as you say, Benji, it was too close to the finish to maybe, yeah, to recover. So Pedersen wasn't up there. Uh, Van der Poel went for it the first one and then eased off the gas. I think he had way more to give. And I think, I think Van der Poel did it the right way, which was do a proper all-out sprint for the first one and then, what's her name, Alperson Phoenix, I was about to say, okay, sounds like Alperson Phoenix then had uh, Dries de Bont, I'm pretty sure, not sure, yeah, Dries de Bont then going for the second one to sort of take those other seconds away from other riders. So that made sense to me rather than, say, Matthew van der Poel trying to contest every single one. Um, that's kind of what de Bont did with the second and third one. And it was actually Mike Turnison doing what you suggested yesterday, Benji, which was don't really contest the second one and then get a, get a draft off the riders trying to catch van der Poel and then sneak away and get maximum seconds in the second and third uh, golden kilometre gates or whatever they're called. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I thought – I did think Pedersen would be the type of guy who could contest maybe at least one of them, try and get a few seconds, and then maybe contest the finale. But I guess what we saw is if there's an even smattering of – if not one rider wins every golden kilometre gate, then whoever wins the stage or comes second on the stage is probably going to get more bonus seconds to make just going for the stage win and being up there more important. Um, so it's still balanced in terms of going for the stage win. But, yeah, w- were you surprised? Like, do you think – I think Alpes and Phoenix did a pretty smart job. Uh, Turnison did, did a smart job as well. Do you think any of the GC contenders, other ones, should have been going for it properly, like Seneschal or Lampard? I mean, Lampard took the third gate, but you, are you surprised Seneschal wasn't up there? Mm, I'm not sure. I feel like he was up there just after the sprint, when we saw some action after the sprint, but for the gates themselves, he wasn't really there. I probably would have gone for them if I was him, but then again, we don't know what his pl- initial plans were for these sprints. The sprint at the end was pretty much a reduced peloton but we'll get to that in a second so maybe he had plans and had to cancel that for the finish but all out my biggest well thing that i noticed is that there was one attack just before the uh golden kilometer started that was Stefan Marke who tried to uh get away about a kilometer from that golden kilometer because there was the breakaway seven seconds ahead of the peloton just one kilometer before the golden, golden kilometer so at that point Van Marke tried to bridge up to that breakaway and tried to launch past them, but one of those breakaway contenders, the um, I think it was 
uh, Ludovic Robert couldn't really pedal with him anymore, so he stayed in his wheel and it frustrated Van Mark and he basically got caught again by the uh, forces of Turnison and he had to sit up in like third position of, at those uh, first intermediate sprint golden kilometer sprint thingies and he never really got to go for it anymore. So I think he made the mistake of trying to go too early and expecting the other teams to be a bit nonchalant or ignorant towards the golden kilometer, which I would definitely not expect at all. So yeah, Van Marke probably should have played it differently as guards and probably should have done similar to Lampard or Turnison and waited for the second or third golden kilometer sprint to actually uh, gain some seconds because right now he got away with quite a bit of energy loss and no extra seconds. So that is a bit unfortunate <laughs> for, for Marke. I'm laughing because that's you could have said that for sort of any of the major races except for Marcus had in his career. Um, <laughs> oh, a lot of lot sad. of work, a lot of energy loss, and he comes away with nothing. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of the story of it. <laughs> but as you said, what he should have done, Benji, and the type of rider he is, is imagine, so straight after the last gate, Lampard takes it, kind of half sits up. Your man, I think, Soren Anderson, sneaky, sneaky, thinks this is a very, very good moment for me to try and get a little bit of a gap when everyone sits up and go for a breakaway. It, it was Soren Cryer Anderson, right? I think it indeed was. Um, it looked like him, so I guess it's Soren Cryer Anderson. It was never really confirmed by the commentators I had on screen, and I don't exactly have a picture of Soren Cryer Anderson just above my TV, so I think it was yes, Soren Cryer Anderson. <laughs> but we did see a, a proper move afterwards because of the action of Soren Cryer Anderson, I think included... It included quite a few riders, and that move actually got cancelled quite soon enough by Bora Hansgrohe, who was obviously leading out the whole party for, well, their main sprinter today, Pascal Ackermann, who looked good when it comes to his team really controlling the race today, so I was expecting him to be really up there in the sprint, but suddenly, I think it was about seven to eight kilometers from the line, we saw two more attacks, people that tried to get away in the last few kilometers, and that was another rider from Sport Vlaanderen and from wallonie Bissell. You have to understand that Top Sport Vlaanderen is a bit of the development team of Flemish cycling. I think it's only Flemish because it's Vlaanderen in the name. So they get youngsters and try and get talent. And their goal is to get that talent on the screen and make sure that other teams that are better than them notice them and potentially give them a contract in World Tour or in Pro Conti just a bit above the level of top sport Vlaanderen to try and kickstart their career. So their goal is to send everybody in the breakaways and any attacks that they can find to try and do something mad. And one hopeless thing I saw today was that one last sport Vlaanderen rider that basically attacked with about eight to seven kilometers to go and went past the Bora Hansgrohe train for five meters and then was like, oh no, this is never going to work when he looked backwards and just stopped pedaling. So I guess, uh, I guess that's not the kind of attention you want, I guess, because it's a bit weird to uh, to do such a desperate move to try and get away when you know a real uh, sprint train is coming. It's It lacks a bit of race inside, I would say, but I don't want to uh, really insult that guy either because he's probably a much better cyclist than I am. I think it was Sean Deby. I think Sean Deby was the uh, Wallonie Bussell rider. I think uh, there was another rider from Sport of London that I found more odd. Sean the B was actually a pretty solid attack, to be honest. But that's what I was going to say. Sean the B, he did. I'm now going to call it the Flemish pirouette, where 
there was one corner and there was a footpath next to the road and it's a, a 90 degree right hand bend and Debye flicked his whole bike onto the footpath so he got a better angle. This is the opposite side of the corner. So he got a better angle from far side to then hit the apex of the corner and go outside apex, ape, uh, outside. And uh, I was like, that is a Belgian specialist in his tr- terrain. I think he won GC in Driedachs van West Vlaanderen in 16. He's one of those guys who's on Lotto Sudal for like four years, world tour level, because I remember his name from Lotto Sudal. And now he's been uh, sort of back at pro Conti level. But, yeah, it's interesting to see riders like that who, even though they're at pro Conti level, pretty much all the guys at Bing Bank, especially the guys from Belgium and and uh, the Netherlands, will be very familiar with uh, someone like him. And they have a legitimate chance of winning stages like this because, like, they're riding in this terrain all the time um, and they're still getting good results in, in such races. But, yeah, the... Sprint trains assembled eventually after that gold clogger. It all calmed down. No more attacks. It was for Hansgrohe. Again, education first. We're kind of leading out. Um, I'm not really sure for who, to be honest. Um, and that didn't last too much longer. The sprint, the French sprint favourites for today were Ackermann, Pedersen, Philipson, Danny Van Boppel probably, uh, Niels Eckhoff maybe, but... So we'll get to that on Sunweb in a second. Echov or Danese, we don't know who's the main sprinter there. Matthew Vanderpol, Merlier, who's the main sprinter at Alpes and Phoenix. Uh, I think Benji was telling me it's actually Bessiger, the Bessiger, the Swiss rider for EF. Um, I didn't actually know he had a, a sprint on him, so that's my bad. I think he came. I think he came uh, second behind last year in the under twenty three. World Road Race, or third actually, he came. He came third in the under twenty threes World Championships Road Race last year, uh, and that reduced bunch. So, I see what you did there. <laughs> yes, you did. But getting to so all the sprint trains have assembled, uh, flat running. Ackerman's probably the favourite. Like on paper, he's the favourite. He's the best name of the sprinters there, um, and he's got maybe the. What best train with Schwarzman, etc. Selig, the whole team is set up to support him. Pedersen, it looked like Trek were going to lead out for. Thank God, um, he was. They had a very strong train, fully set up with four guys. That um, yeah, four really good lead out men for Trek. Um, but then there was a big crash, Benji, with just like four and a half k's to go, just outside of three k's to go, and like what, what actually happened because. It was such a weird crash to see that at the front of the peloton. You don't normally see crashes like that. So what actually was the cause? And do we know who the riders were involved at the front? Well, I know that at the front of the race, we had a Sunweb rider that was just done relaying. He uh, went to the left of the road, but at that same exact moment, the Israel train moved up from the left, and the front rider from that Israel Israel train was looking right as a stem and yeah, he looked up and there was the uh, Sunweb rider and he basically just rode into his wheel and it caused him to crash. First, it looked like it wasn't going to be a, a big crash because that one rider was down and the tempo behind was kind of slowing down, but it was such a, a delayed effect in the rest of the peloton because that one rider falls, but the real crash ended up happening when after like five seconds, the guys in the back of the peloton weren't fast enough to break and they just rode into everybody. So 
about half the peloton was down, I'm pretty sure. And there were some victims in there. I think Oliver Narsen was one of the uh, biggest GC people that was in that crash. We didn't really name him too much in the preview because we did not expect his time trial to be too high up. And maybe in the hill stage, he'd have trouble as well. So that was our cause for GC. But it doesn't look like he's going to be starting tomorrow, to be honest, the way he was pedaling to the finish line, literally with one leg being pushed by Dries de Bond and so forth. So the Bond also crashed. Just plenty of people on the ground. We don't know the uh, actual victims yet, who is going to be uh, starting tomorrow, who won't. But we do know that the main GC favorites were still at the front, Van der Poel, Pedersen, I think Søren Kranderson as well. So in general, the biggest guns were still up there that we expect to be important in GC. Yeah, it was... It's a shame to see a crash like that. It was mainly through inattention, and the first riders just behind him missed out on crashing. But then, yeah, that just that pile-up effect of riders not expecting there to be a crash there at the back, and there was nothing they could do. Uh, it's a real shame to see, like Narsen, who's this is sort of one of his home races. He's not had the best year so far, and he's hoping for a good result here. And yeah, real shame that he's uh, pretty much out of it. But yeah, the sprint main sprinters continued. It was Trek Segafredo who actually took over, I think, properly with about two Ks to go. Their sprint train was going much quicker than Bora Hansgrohe. I think it was Schwarzman who wasn't able to keep up at that point with the, the leading Trek Segafredo men. But then there was a right-hand corner, and Maz Pedersen, and, or his, his last lead-out man, lost the wheel of their first two riders. Now, maybe it was intentional, maybe it wasn't. And they got sandwiched, or the, sorry, they were one of the slices on top of the Ackerman and Bora Hansgrohe filling in that sandwich. So they were just sitting behind Ackerman. And apparently it was a headwind sprint. I'm not sure, slightly curved sprint just beforehand. Uh, Ackerman's gone a little bit early, I think, from what I've seen since the lockdown's finished. He's just been, yeah, he's just been jumping a little bit early and it's cost him uh, recently. So. Yeah, I think, I don't know if Pedersen missed a trick today or not. I'll have to watch the overhead a few more times. I've only watched in the last 500 metres. You really need to watch the overhead for like the full last kilometre to see whether there's mistakes leading up or what, what, could, have, what could have sort of been done differently or why they were slightly out of position. But then it was uh, Trek Segafredo's men, they still fully let out on the front, the front two. Then it was... Ackerman's last lead-out man, and he peeled off, and there was a pretty big bunch swarmed behind him. It wasn't, like, fully strung out. And Pedersen's last lead-out man had done a reasonably good job of putting him right behind then on Ackerman's wheel, just as Ackerman... Uh, well, actually, no, this that's not what happened, as I'm remembering now. Pedersen deliberately lost his lead-out man's wheel, who was going past Ackerman on the right-hand side, and Pedersen slotted on to Ackerman's back wheel. Now, I kind of think that's a bit unusual for Pedersen because the way he lost Tour de France sprint in stage one was he didn't get clear air early enough. The way he got a really good result in the Champs-Élysées sprint in stage 21 was he got put in clear air early. He's a man who probably doesn't have the best initial acceleration, whereas Ewan has a really good kick but he's got a long top end. I even made a video about how he's got a good long sprint on him. And 
yeah, he lost. He deliberately slot onto Ackerman's wheel. Not sure that was the right option. Uh, we'll see the, the rider who won the stage definitely did the opposite of that. And, yeah, it was an Ackerman kicking early. If you watch the overhead, you'll see Pedersen loses, like, a good wheel or bike length almost on Ackerman because of sort of missing a few pedal strokes at that stage. You've got other riders swarming trying to take Ackerman's wheel, uh, such as Danny Van Poppel, Stefan Bessiger, Dainese, Ekov, Lorenzo Manzin for TDE. Uh, he won a stage in, I think, Tropicale, Mr. Bongo, uh, sort of like a third-tier, second-tier sprinter. He was fighting for Ackerman's wheel early and I think kind of got pinched by Pedersen. Or maybe that was a little bit earlier. And, yeah, Ackerman going into the headwind, I knew he wasn't winning. The minute he kicked, I was like, he's not winning because he's got guys who are, A, he's not Marcel Kittel. Like, good sprinter, Pascal Ackerman, not as good as Bennett or Ewan, and... Definitely nowhere near as good as Marcel Kittel, who Marcel Kittel, when he was on peak form, could just be like, I don't give a fuck, 220 metres, 200 metres, straight headwind, I don't care. <laughs> I'll put a, three bike lengths into everybody. Pascal Ackerman's not that level. So when you've got other sprinters like Van Poppel, Pedersen, Philipsen, Bessiger, Dainese, even Mathieu, Mathieu van der Poel, Merlier as well behind you, all guys capable of winning World Tour sprint stages, that's... So sort of it's a, it's a mistake, but also his lead-out kind of meant he had no other option. Um, and then he got swarmed a little bit from Pedersen on the right-hand side. You can see Pedersen eventually coming out of his slipstream and gradually making his way past Ackerman and eventually did pip Ackerman on the line. And then out of nowhere on the left-hand side of those riders, probably taking the shortest way to the line, who after being in their draft, Ewan-style, it was a very Ewan-style victory. Um, on the left-hand side, Jasper Philipson of the UAE Emirates takes his second World Tour stage win, his first World Tour win in Europe. His first one was in Tour Down Under in 2019. So I'd say this is a better win. This is a more prestigious win. I know he probably beat um, Ewan and Co. in that Tour Down Under sprint in 2019. Um, oh, he beat Sagan. He beat Danny Van Poppel, actually. I uh, didn't. I don't really see Ewan there in that list. So I, I'd class this sprint... Above that, um, and it's good to see from him. I think I said very, you know, obviously I got someone probably needs to clip it, the smartest takes. I said yesterday that Philipson probably wouldn't be beating these guys in a flat sprint. I didn't see that from him based on what he'd done this season. It's probably, it is a little bit of a surprise, but then again, I was hoping he'd really step that up and he's a young guy. So it's it's not surprising, I guess, that he is he's capable of doing this. Um but yeah, do you think I'm being too harsh on Ackerman, Benji? Like, do you think he had really no choice but to kick then? I think he kicked a bit too early, but while I'm rewatching the sprint right now, I do want to highlight Jasper Philipson because he starts a sprint basically not even in the wheel of Pedersen, which is the person that was in the wheel of Ackerman before the actual sprint kicked off. And at that moment, there was even a Wanty rider just in the wheel of Ackerman. So I think that's Van Poppel. And so Ackerman kicks Van Poppel in the wheel, Peterson in that wheel. Then there's a bit of a gap where Merlier tried to slip, slip in. And then left behind, Merlier is where Philipson is. And it's crazy how he worms his way through the sprint. He basically goes to the right of the road, follows Merlier to try and see if there's a gap there. And he finds a gap between, well, a direct energy rider and Merlier. 
He slides through that gap in the wheel of Peterson again, sees that he can't go to the right because Ackermann is moving to the right with Van Poppel in the wheel and with Peterson on the right as well. So he decides to diagonally sprint through the peloton and basically without endangering anybody, move through the peloton that way and move past Ackermann on the left. So it's a really, really, really good sprint when it comes to the inside to where he can actually come out and where he has the best opportunity of actually reaching a potential victory here. So I did want to highlight that detail because I rewatched it in overhead and it was quite quite interesting to see, to be honest. Yeah, very impressive from Philipson. Um, he probably put out a lot less watts than Ackerman in this last 200 meters, but positioning, timing is more important and he showed that today, um, just like Ackerman, I guess, showed in Terreno. So an interesting top 10, though, on this stage, Benji. Here's the full top 10. Philipson. Pedersen, Pedersen just came second, um, and he only just got, this is very tight by the way now, through watching a lot of horse racing, I was like Pedersen easily came second, beat Ackerman, but uh, Philipson just beat Pedersen on the line too, it's very close between those three riders, Ackerman third, Van Poppel fourth, Bessiger fifth, Dainese sixth, Ekov seventh, both on Sunweb, Lorenzo Manzine eighth, good result given that he got a bit of a bump in the last 500 metres. Mathieu van der Poel, 9th, and Merlier, 10th, both on Alpes and Phoenix. So I guess a few questions there, Benji, on did two of those teams leave their lead out way too late or are they both just sprinting for themselves? Now, I'm pretty sure, well, I don't know, actually. Now, now I'm actually saying I'm not sure. Was Merlier just sprinting for himself and van der Poel was just seeing if he could make something happen? if a gap opened up or whatever, Benji, and trying to gain a few bonus seconds if possible on GC. Or, I mean, in that case, you'd kind of expect him to be, or maybe he should be helping out Merlier. And was Merlier just going for his own sprint? Or did Alperson Phoenix leave their lead out for Van der Poel way too late and ended up, yeah, having two riders just finishing in the top 10? And the same question applies more so for Dainese and Ekhoff. How are they both coming 6th and 7th? It's a bit unusual, and I don't even know which one they're going for in the sprints. Uh, I thought Ekhoff could even be their man on GC uh, for Bink Bank, like an undercover GC rider. You mentioned, I think, that on Twitter today. So, yeah, what's going on there? Do you know why both – is there some rational reason why we've got two teams with two riders in the top 10 here? I'm guessing that the opposite reason is the fact that with about a kilometre, 200, 300 to go, we have – a few corners, and at that point, I did not see my lead anywhere in the first 15, 20 riders. So I was actually unsure whether he actually made that front group because I saw Van der Poel up front and Jonas Ricard literally like two wheels behind Van der Poel. So then I saw Ricard move to the back, and I think that was to get Merlier to the front. And about 200 meters later, Ricard was on the right with Merlier in the wheel, trying to move up towards the wheel of Vanderpool. So I think they kept Vanderpool in there in case Merlier was unable to reach the front. And I think it countered themselves a bit more when they reached the last two corners because there was a right corner, 90 degrees, where Vanderpool basically rode next to the Bora train into a corner. And because of that, Merlier was unable to move up because Vanderpool had to break in that corner. So he was a bit too eager before the corner braked in the corner and basically ended up just behind Ackermann again. And because of that, my lead was 
a real extra behind once again. So I think their tactic to keep Van der Poel up there actually was a bit inefficient towards Merlier and might have ruined his positioning a tiny bit more than hoped for. And I just feel like maybe it's because of the crash and with all the stuff that happened that Van der Poel was like, maybe I can still try to be up here, but I feel like he shouldn't. He's got a GC he needs to go for, and he clearly is not in the sprint form to be the likes of Ackermann, Philipson, and so forth here. So, yeah, I feel either he has to give himself more for Merlier, and that was not really the case today because he basically stopped the positioning of Merlier a tiny bit in that last corner. But, yeah, I think it was not very efficient, the uh, cooperation of those two, but it might just be that in that moment, there was nothing, nowhere you can go. You're on the right of the Bora train. You can't exactly break because you'll block Merlier anyway. So maybe he was trying to avoid that, but ended up blocking Merlier anyway in that position. So yeah, I, I don't really blame Alperson here. It could be that it's a tactical failure, but it's impossible for us to deduct that. And potentially it's accidentally that they landed, that they ended up in that position. And with Sunweb, it's a bit different. You basically see both of them sprinting next to each other in the last 300 meters, and it doesn't look like either one of them was actually trying to get the other to the front. So I'm not sure what happened there, and I'm genuinely confused to uh, what the goal there was, but maybe it was something similar. Yeah, I think they should go for Ekov. Uh, I disagree. You know my views. Okay, well, <laughs> we, we can get into that. I think they should go for Ekov on GC. Um, but yeah, just rounding out the GC positions, it's Philipson first. Pedersen second, four seconds behind Philipson. Mike Turnison is in third, five seconds behind Philipson because Turnison picked up more of those golden kilometer uh, seconds. Ackerman fourth, six seconds back. Vanderpol fifth, seven seconds back. Lampart same time, sixth. Mark Cavendish, who poked his head out in the golden kilometer, not, uh, seventh. Danny Van Poppel eighth, Bessiger ninth, and Dainese tenth. So. Tomorrow, we've got the ITT in Bink Bank. My pick for the stage is Stefan Kung. He's won this pro... He's won... No, it's not a prologue. He's won this uh, TT a couple of times, at least two times. Uh, his main competition is Mads Pedersen, but I'm picking Stefan Kung tomorrow, the, the obvious pick. I think it's gonna. It's not going to be so simple that Kung is going to be the all-out favourite, despite actually being a terribly good time trialist. It's a very cornery parkour. We mentioned that yesterday. And I think that's going to play into the effect that very strong TT slash prologue specialists even would be more advantageous. And again, Kung is one of those as well. So I would dare to put Peterson and Sonnenkranderson a bit behind Kung, but I'd be, uh, I wouldn't look past them for a potential victory either. Yeah, so I'm going to be tuning in. I'm pretty keen to see that. Um, I, I agree. Kranderson should probably do a pretty good time as well. But that's Bing Bank Stage 1. Uh, little note, just a little note to remember. Matthew van der Poel, I saw he said in Dutch media that riders criticise sort of race organisers very quickly, but they're also the ones making the race dangerous. If they finish on a 10k straight road, they'll still crash. And I'm not sure when he said that exactly, but we saw that again today. The rules say the riders aren't allowed to go on the footpaths or whatever. And that's a safety reason because there's level changes and you're coming in and out of the road. It is very, it is dangerous doing things like that. 
And we saw on so many occasions today riders going onto the footpath, bike paths, etc. Sometimes maybe it was inavoidable when unavoidable when there's no signage and the road just randomly becomes a bike path on the side. But a lot of the times it was just a conscious choice because it was the shortest line or they didn't want to lose positions in the bunch. So, I mean, it's not always the race organiser's fault is what I'm saying. Sometimes there are safety rules. And, like, what are the commissaires going to do, Benji? Like, they're not going to – they can't DQ or fine, I guess, half the peloton. Maybe they can. Uh, like, what do you think they should do? Because you brought this up to, to me again, and it happens in every single one of these Belgian races. It really bugs me when I'm watching these races because last year in the Big Bang Tour, we had plenty of complaints by riders that it was a very dangerous parkour. I think Alex Kirsch was the main engine behind those comments. Uh, not that they were unfair towards the organization. I feel like there were fair comments and fair complaints, but you can't go ahead and break the rules and then ride on footpaths endangering spectators and such. So <laughs> I feel like in general, it's a bit of a two-way street there as well. and. Yeah, rider safety is obviously very important, but sometimes I feel like riders are endangering themselves unnecessarily and additionally breaking UCI rules doing so because it's not allowed and people have been decued for it. People have lost seconds in GC for the same thing. Today we saw 30, 40 people on one single image go on a, uh, on a, uh, a footpath on a, a straight street, not even with an intersection. And yeah, at that point I was like, okay, this is a, this is a problem, but what can you do? I don't know. You can't DQ half the peloton, but in a smaller Belgian race, I, I dare to just make a message out of it and actually do so <laughs> because this is really, it's getting too far and nobody really cares about that rule. It seems. Yeah. And eventually the law of odds say that a crash will happen just because of the level changes, it's slippery, etc. I know these guys' skills are insane, but still, it's not the rule is there for a reason. But moving on to a flesh Wallon, um, not a monument, but one of the most important Arden classics and one for the punchers. And the best puncher in the world isn't even going to flesh Wallon this week, tomorrow. Uh, it's tomorrow, it's already there. Um, Julian Alphilippe's missing it, he would have been the heavy favorite. And maybe if Matthew van der Poel was here. I don't know. Would he probably been? He probably would have been second favorite too. Uh, but yeah, Alaphilippe. Obviously, whoever makes Quick Steps kits is a Vermark or something. They obviously couldn't get the rainbow dies ready in time for Flesh. No, I'm kidding. They, he's won it before. Um, he's just obviously wants to focus on Liège rather than uh, Wallon, which wouldn't really add much to complete his Palmares. And it's like four days after Worlds, so I guess it makes sense for Alaphilippe not being there. Just a shame and just a byproduct of this uh, shortened season that he's not going to be there. And I don't even know if Valverde is going to be there. He's not on. I can't see him. Uh, Jesus, I'm having a bit of a heart attack here, Benji. Valverde, not at Flesh Wallon. Doesn't yeah, look like he's there. It's, it's special. That, that is wild. Okay, well, anyway, the favourites for the race. Hershey, favourite at about 6-1. to Kwiatkowski, second favourite, 6-1-2. to two. Mike Woods, third favourite. About the same odds as well. Tato Pogaccio, about 8 to 1. Fourth favourite, Turns. Fifth favourite, Martin. Sixth favourite, Badioli. Amen. Seventh favourite, Sharkman, Dumela, Wellens, Kosnefwa. And then Yelavananda. So 
Not the strongest puncher field you'll ever see at Flesh Wallon compared to maybe historical editions. A um, little bit of a weaker field, but still going to be an exciting race anyway. You've got Hershey, who's had a magic tour, come third in Worlds on that uh, very punchy or very hilly course, and he's right there. He's <laughs> come out of relative obscurity in the public's eye. I mean, hardcores would have known who he is, but and now he's first favourite for Fleshwood on. So, yeah, what a rise for Hirschi in the 2020 season. Kwiatkowski looking magic. Um, before you say who your real picks are, Benji, I, I, will, I will lay anyone any money against Dan Martin at 14 to 1. I think that's ludicrous. Um, so if anyone wants to bet on Dan Martin at 20 to 1, to win flesh then hit me up but yeah it's what do you think the race is going to pan out like benji do you want to remind everybody of what uh <laughs> what the parkour is and the actual pivotal points in flesh so basically the whole parkour is a bull fest until you come into the last 1400 meters that's basically how <laughs> i see flesh well on there's a few hills before the last hill the mudahui and i think they passed the mudahui multiple times the mood van hui in dutch and yeah, it's just a, an amazing climb, and it never really gets used before the final ascension. I don't know the actual percentages by heart of the climb. Maybe you have them by hand, but if not, in general, it's just very steep for very long. And it starts off with basically not what you'd expect in a race that is a boarfest that ends in a in a climb like the Mudahui, because you'd expect that they're sprinting for the bottom of that climb with a four-man train, and then that four-man train goes one by one up the front in the first 100 meters of the climb. But if you do that, you're going to be blocked on the road because it's a narrow road. And basically from the start of the climb, you see that the GC, no, not the GC favorites, the favorites for the race (laughs) start lining up one by one at the front of the race. And usually it's, well, the people that can really punch it without actually dying towards the end of the climb that can make it the real muscle houses of the punchers. With Philippe, he had the acceleration and the strength and resistance to keep that up for the climb in the past. Pulverde, definitely. And the thing about it is some people on the Mudahui go too early. You've got a few corners on the Mudahui. And before the last straight line to the finish, there's a corner. And usually if you go before that corner, it's going to be pretty tough to keep that up till the line. So... On paper, you see the Valvares or the Alaphilippes kind of stick themselves to the front until that moment. And somewhere around that corner or just behind the corner actually start launching because otherwise it's it's blatant suicide. So, yeah, in the end, wonderful classic if you only watch the last 1,500 meters. And outside of that, I genuinely believe that there's only a 1% chance that anything happens before that. I don't see this race ending up differently than action on the Mudahui. And like you said, there's uh, there's Hirschi, and he's made a rise like crazy. But I think there's there's some other people that I would like to shine up as well in a second, but you were, you were planning to say something? Yeah, well, I think this year could be, if there was going to be a year, it was going to be a little bit different. It doesn't have Valverde, who won four years in a row up to 2017, and Alfa won two years in a row the last two years. There's going to be a year that's going to be a little bit different. Maybe it doesn't have the strongest teams going this year. It uh, doesn't have the big engines to work for the big favourites. 
maybe something different could happen this year. Maybe Mike Woods or someone goes early. I mean, they do the Murdohui three times in this race, at least. They do it three times, I think. And there's other less steep climbs of 1.6Ks at 6.3% that they do a few repetitions of the Cote uh, de Chemie de Guéguerses and the Cote de Ref. 2.3Ks at 5.1%. They do the Mordehoy 1K at 11.8%, so it's steep as hell. Would have really suited Alphilippe, who went in the big ring on the steepest section of the last climb, uh, the Gadastana in Imola in Worlds, when he his winning move. And, yeah, he's not going to be there, neither with sort of his quick-step generals to to marshal him and, and bring back any breakaways. So, yeah, I think... What about if I was Mike Woods? Is my best chance of winning maybe going a little bit early? They've got there with 11Ks to go. They've got a 1,600-meter climb at 6.3%. Um, could other riders try and use that as a launch pad? As Benji says, though, very correctly, historically, that's not the case uh, in yeah in Fleshwillon. It's It just comes down to that final sprint often. Uh, and even last year, they had exactly the same with 7Ks, or 8Ks before the Murdohoi, they had the uh, Cote de Charave, 1,800 metres at 6.5%. They also did three repetitions of Murdohoi, a little bit longer, I think, not as steep a gradient. Uh, I think they finished properly on the steepest part this year. But, yeah, same profile last year and exactly the same race result that Benji said always happens. So, yeah, we'll give it to you straight. That's what usually happens in Flechwillon. Usually in Liège, Bastogne-Liège, we see more. there's more opportunities for late right, late attacks or um, breakaways, etc. Um, but, yeah, my pick for tomorrow is Mikhail Kwiatkowski. I think he was the strongest rider on the steepest part of the climb in Imola and did a lot of work. He attacked early. I think he was a little bit stronger than Hirschi. I think he's a savvier rider than Hirschi. And, uh, yeah, I like Kwiatkowski tomorrow. That's my pick. I've been picking him for a lot of races recently. Um, but, yeah, who's your man and who's some, who's some dark horses, Benji? Because you're usually pretty pretty crash hot with the uh, the dark horse picks. I'm actually going to take my main favorite as Dylan Turns. And the reason for that is he's been pretty good in this race in the past. He's been on the podium of this race in 2017. He was not selected for the Tour de France was pretty pissed about it because, well, he somewhat deserved it, although Vols was probably a better fit for the helpers of Landa and the Tour de France, but I would have picked Turns over over Vols any day, even though the Dauphiné was not that special for Dylan Turns. But I expect him to to be great on this uh, Mudehui and hopefully in his, uh, in his good form again. The thing about it is, he is really good on these on these climbs because he's able to keep himself at the front the way you should. And then he is able to launch at the right moment on the Murahui. The only issue is going to be positioning. He was in pretty terrible positioning in one of the years before, after the 2017 one. So um, if he can get into a good position before the uh, Murahui happens, and if he can keep himself up there and then launch at the right moment, I believe that he has an opportunity. Hirschi as well, like you said, but... In regards to dark horses, I would not necessarily look at Lotto Sudal. Tim Wellens always has disappointed on Mudehui, so I definitely do not expect too much from that. Maybe Leonard Kemner. We've spoken about him a lot. 
a, a big favorite here at the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast. I don't know. We haven't really seen it from him. Rudy Molar from Groupama never disappoints either. And I think the last name I wanted to name was a rider at Arkea. And that's what I'm about because I think he has history in this race as well. So those are the main names, I think. And Cosnefoy, do you believe Cosnefoy can do something on this stage considering it's, well, will he be too eager to attack too early on the mood of we? <laughs> because we know he is way too eager in races. He's probably going to attack on the third to last uh, repetition in the Dehui and his arms <laughs> up at the finish. I don't know. No, I just don't think he's as good as the other guys. He probably has similar level watts, not too far off, but his racecraft is not near sort of the Kwiatkowski's of this world. So Bag- a, a name I expected you to mention, who you mentioned before and maybe for Worlds, uh, Baglioli, the Italian for Quickstep. So... You did you not like what you saw from him at Worlds? Nah, not necessarily that. I just don't know what he is at on this finish. He might be an outsider for it, but I have no historical reference to see him ride up a Murahui with the likes of a of a Hirschi, and that is what I am currently not looking at. That's why I'm not looking at Bagioli here yet. Uh, he might surprise us, obviously. Um, but another name I would like to call us outsider as a real dark horse would be Sunweb's number one on this, apparently, Ilan van Wilder. And he is a Belgian, 20 years old only, so one of the youngsters at Sunweb once again. Most likely they go for Hirschi. So um, I think that this is why we won't see him potentially taking a, a good result here. But I'm pretty sure if you put this guy on this race, he could do a top 15 or like 12th, 13th, 14th. So might be a good result there, but I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that he's going to be spent before the last climb fighting for Hirschi, which is a pretty obvious thing because Hirschi could generally be all-out favorite here. We've seen plenty of things <laughs> moving towards that. And it really makes, in general, a feeling towards Hirschi that last year he was not really that known to the mainstream cycling public, and now he's basically a fan favorite for many. So I love seeing that. I love the growth in riders and yeah, I, uh, I hope we see a good race tomorrow, but my favorite stays Dylan turns. I think we're going to see tomorrow, maybe the half, the answer to the question of whether Tari Pagacha could have followed, uh, Julian Alphilippe in Imola because he's, I think third favorite and yeah, similar style finish. Similar style parkour, just not as long, maybe not as hard as as, as at Imola. Uh, and we're going to see what the form Pagacha is going absolutely full beans up a steep finale. Um, I expect him to do pretty well. I expect Pagacha top top five. I'd be surprised if he didn't get top five, to be honest, um, even though he's not he up to wing. Yeah, he can win. Of course I think he can win, uh, but he's not superhuman. He's a little bit tired, he said, at, at Worlds. He didn't have the best legs, although his legs look pretty good to me in that breakaway uh, solo break. So, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I just like Kwiatkowski. I've got to pick one, one of them. I'm going to go way off the reservation with my my dark horse. Like, so it's, I, as I say it, it's not even, it's not even correct. Um, Quinn Simmons, the American on Trek Segafredo, uh, I think he came... Did a pretty good job in, where was it, Britannia Classic. That's a different race to this. 
But in Tour de Hungary, he came second on GC. He's, I don't know, man. I just think he could do something. Whether it's just maybe he just does a really strong lead out like we maybe saw for like Joaquin Rodriguez, that Katusha squad when they had like Navarro and Moreno and Joaquin Rodriguez. They were just lighted up on the base of the Murdoi, um, the small Spaniards. But, yeah, maybe he'll do something like that for Port tomorrow. But I just look out for Quinn Simmons leading the peloton at the front of the race and putting people into difficulty tomorrow because I think that could happen. Uh, I know it's really hilly, but it's not that – it's not like Imola. It's not as hard as Imola. Um, So, yeah, that's, that's a man to watch for sure. Uh, otherwise, for Dark Horse picks, Sergio Aguita, he's not looked in fantastic form. He didn't look good in uh, Imola either. Sort of a, a man you'd be expecting to do pretty well here. Rigoberto Uran, you've got to always mention him. He'd probably get a top 10, um, but I don't think he can win. And a man who I thought five years ago, uh, this is not a Dark Horse pick, but just a man I thought would be doing well in races like this, Petr Vakoc. Just want to note that he's riding tomorrow for Alps and Phoenix. You know, I thought he was going to become one of the top punchers in the world, um, as well as a man who can do well in flatter, more cobbly races um, and sort of the the Canadian classic style races. But, yeah, just 28 years old, he's only about seven months older than me, uh, aging myself there. And... His career's kind of stepped down from world tour level. I don't know. I don't really have much backstory of what's what's happened. I can't remember whether he had an injury or something, Benji. But, yeah, just interesting to see riders like that who we thought were going to be taking it to the next level. Sometimes it just it just doesn't happen. Am I missing? Was he injured or something? Or what, did something happen in his career that has meant he didn't sort of progress from that 2015-16 time when he was really killing it? I think he had an injury at a certain points and... That was just after he won Brabantsepel, if I recall correctly, but it's been ages. Um, but yeah, he has not been the talent that he was meant to be, and it's not, I think, an injury that was career-ending towards being a potential talent, if that makes sense. So I think he just, in general, didn't reach the potential that we expected Vakoc to reach. But when we talk about people like Vakoc, I would even dare to say... Uh, the likes of Jelle van Endert, because he's so going to be on television tomorrow at a certain point. I can bet you that he's going to do either a, an early attack or he's going to be somewhere in the top 10, surprisingly, at the end. So, um, yeah, he's, he's getting old. He's riding for Bingo, Wallonie Bussell now. So uh, this was one of the riders that, like you said with Vakosh, was meant to conquer the world for Belgium in the past because he won on La Plage de Belfia quite a few years back, I think. 2010, something like that, 2009. I don't know the exact year, but the man was genuinely seen as our next Grand Tour King. Uh, it was during the days where we had Vandenbroek and such. So, uh, yeah, just wanted to, know, to note that, that I'm probably, uh, I'm hoping to see him at a certain point. I don't expect a result from him. Did you know that he came third in flesh in 2018? And... I think, yeah, second in Balois Belgium Tour in, in 2018. So that's not that far behind. That was third, by the way, behind Alaphilippe and Valverde when Valverde, the year he won Worlds, and the first year Alaphilippe won it. So 
I don't know. I don't know where he is in. Oh, he actually is there. I think he is like twelfth in the betting. Um, so maybe this is his one race this year where he just really shows out. But yeah, that's a good call from you to call him out on the start list. Um, but yeah, that's our flesh men's preview. The parkour for the women's is 123 k's. Uh, similar climbs. It's got the same three climbs that I mentioned for the men's. It's got two reps of the Murderhoy. It's 1.1 k's at 10.6 percent. So I think they slightly go a bit longer on the climb um, and there's a flatter section at the end same hilltop finish and there's two names you've got to know about for tomorrow's stage Anna van der Breggen and Mariana Voss and if I had to pick between the two of them right now it's Anna van der Breggen I think she's won this she's won this race a ridiculous number of times um, from memory she's won it like ooh, five times in a row I think from 15 to 19 so Voss won it back in 2013 and 2011. If I had to pick, I know Voss is still looking good at the moment. In like Giro Rosa, she won stages again. She won on a steep finish in the Giro Rosa too. One of those was properly steep, and she dropped Van der Breggen there as well. So I don't know. Maybe Van der Breggen doesn't have that punch anymore. Um, it's hard to say that when she won last year, and she's more been GC focused and. Um, time trial focused but yeah i still think van der breggen will be my heavy favorite for tomorrow uh and probably second mariana voss and i think it's being televised the women's there'll be live television coverage i think that's correct if i've heard that yes uh, i hope that's the case i'll certainly be watching it um because i want to see yeah the whether van der breggen versus voss because it's good it's good when the dutch women are <laughs> forced to be on different teams obviously voss is on ccc Van der Breggen on Bowles Dolmans. Um, other favourites for tomorrow, I think probably a little bit hard for Michaela Harvey on Equipe Paul Carr. Uh, Lucy Kennedy, mm, she hasn't been looked as good this year. Um, Liana Lippert, she always seems to be just behind Voss and co in these finales. And Elisa Longo Borghini, same with, I think, Katrina uh, Nuiadoma. It's all the sort of the names you expect to be there. Uh, to be on a Cecily Trup Ludwig. I know it's a similar finish to Giro de Emilia. So if Ludwig was going to get one over on Van der Breggen or Voss, tomorrow would be the pick. Because it's similar to Emilia where, yeah, they repped the Murderhoy a couple of times, but are they... Yeah, if it's just a, a really easy race up to that point and then they just smash the Murderhoy at the end, I think that's a really good chance for either Voss or Uthrup Ludwig to win. Uh, and I'd probably be tipping Ludwig actually over her if that happens. If I was van der Breggen, I would do the opposite of what happens in the men's race. I'd attack on the Motorhoid early, just like she did in Imola, and see who's going to chase her. Mitch um, and Scott don't have Annemie van Vleuten there. A lot of the teams have showed a lack of real firepower and bringing back moves. Do I think, you know... Ashley Mulman and Soraya Paladin and uh, Ruyakas, they're pretty good actually for CCC lives. So it's different to Worlds where there really was no one to bring back to Dutch women. At least Voss has got some good generals with her to bring that sort of move back. Um, but yeah, Van der Breggen, she could go early. She could win late. Um, I think last year, I can't remember how much she won by. She won by, I think, ooh. Yeah, like a, a second. So over Annemiek van Vleuten. So it's a good race for the women as well. Um, and Mariana Voss came fourth, 14 seconds back. 
and Nui Adoma quite a way back as well. So, yeah, my picks on the Bregan. Do you have any other picks, Benji? Do you have any? Um, do you think differently? I mean, it's hard to go past Anna Van Bregan in her form at the moment. I think for once I'm going to agree with your pick as well, and I'm going to break the rule that everybody here needs to uh, have a different pick, the unwritten rule, because we actually don't have that rule, but we apparently pick different riders every time. But this time around, I'm going to change that. I'm going to say Anna van der Breggen, and it's because she's recent world champion. This is her first race in the jersey, and she's going to want to show that on the top spot of the podium. So that's why I think she's going to win as an additional moral bonus to uh, her physical strength as well. Yeah, looking forward to that. And thankfully, they're both on the same day. I like when the women's are both on the same day. Then they can both be fresh in our minds before the podcast. But that's, I think, all we were going to get to today. Just those two, the race preview and the Bing Bank Tour wrap-up. We look forward to speaking to you tomorrow after Bing Bank Tour, Time Trial and Flesh on Big day tomorrow. And I think we've got the Giro preview. I think we're doing that tomorrow or the day after, Benji. Can't remember which day we said we'd be doing it. I think it's tomorrow. So oh boy, tomorrow. we're flat out. It's tomorrow? <laughs> okay, that's good and bad news. Hopefully the start list has been finalized because, yeah, that's killing me at the moment. We want to bring the previews out early enough for you all to listen to them in enough lead time before the race starts. But the teams insist on, like, Education First don't announce their start list until under 24 hours before the race. So it's pretty hard to do a preview when team lists aren't really finalized properly. That happened with the, before the Giro Rosa too. So uh, tomorrow is the earliest. I think we can do it, and we'll just have to go on the start lists that are available then. But thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Ciao. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 